and welcome to Independence, the FIEC podcast. My name is Adrian Reynolds. I'm head of National Ministries and I'm here with John Stevens, our National Director. Hello, John. Hi, Adrian. It's our regular roundup of the news. Uh, we're one twerp short, as uh, just to quote Blackadder there. Um, Phil is not here with us today. He is off looking after um, his daughter while his wife attends the, let me get it right, the FIEC Ministry Wives Retreat, which is going on at the moment been going on this week, isn't it, John? That's great. Important part of our programme. Two conferences this week. We've had Thrive, which has been for women's workers. Yep. Um, and UCOO, Hannah Hutchison, was able to be that as, at that as well. And then um, second half of the week, um, support for pastors' wives, um, led by our two uh, kind of directors for women's ministry, um, so Anna McGowan and uh, Rachel. Um, and we're just delighted that we've had good numbers um, who have come to those uh, kind of events, good reports of how encouraged they've been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. They, they happen every year. And um you might think, well, the next one's a year away, which which it is. Um, but actually, if you're going to organise childcare, things like that, it's worth planning ahead to see if you can find time for either women's workers in your church or a, a ministry wife to come along. That'll be a great part of their their um, uh, growth and development and just spiritual care. Now, we're here to talk about the news. And so I think we'd start um, talking about Europe. John, that's right. We've just come back from Poland, you and I. Um, we've been at the European Leadership Forum in uh, Wisła. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, in the south, could do my little compass. Never eat shreddy wheat. Southwest of Poland. Uh, just tell us what the European Leadership Forum is, John. Yeah, the Leadership Forum. Uh, this was a conference, which is a gathering of about seven hundred or so leaders from across um, uh, Europe. Um, mm-hmm. They really bring leaders together, and the, the goal is to encourage them and envision them for the work of gospel, the gospel across Europe. The um, vision of the forum is to want to renew the biblical church across Europe. Recognition that there are many places in Europe where there are tiny numbers of evangelicals. Mm. It's a struggle. And no so, resources. And no really, resources, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so Southern Europe, which has been predominantly Catholic, Eastern Europe, which is communist mm. and, and orthodox, um, Scandinavian countries and Germany where liberalism has been rife. Um, actually, in world terms, places where there is a need for the gospel um, behind kind of the Islamic world and Japan, uh, Europe is really then the least evangelized yeah, sort yeah. of continent of the world. So yeah. that's the vision. Um, and it's not just a really a conference. The conference is part of it. But through the year, there are all sorts of kind of groups, um, mentoring, um, uh, other sort of more dedicated, focused events for people at different aspects of ministry, like, for example, apologetics. Um, and, and so it's seeking all year round to equip and encourage leaders for the work of the gospel. And you and I were both leading networks there. So I was leading a network for leaders of Christian organizations, thinking about the skills of organizational leadership. I had a group of about 45 leaders from um, across Europe, helping them to think about how they can run their churches and organizations more biblically. And Adrian, what were you leading? So I was leading a foundations network. It's for the first time is really to think about some of the basics of, of leadership. Um, and again, yeah, people from all across Europe and just greatly encouraging, wasn't it, to hear people's stories. So to realise actually that most people are ministering across Europe with very, very little in a way of either access to resources or indeed money. So I, I was I met a Hungarian pastor, part of a network of churches, very, very similar actually in many ways to the FIC. And he said, well, we're one of the larger churches in the network. I said, well, what size are you? And he said, we're about 45 members. And it's just it's just a reminder that um, there are lots of really good things going on, but it's tough actually being in ministry across Europe. We, we you know, we think we have it tough. Um, but actually, we're, we're greatly blessed, aren't we, in the UK? We are, and I think that's why we're particularly keen to want to mm. serve there, is we've got much to give to those um, in Europe. It's always humbling to learn from their example of faith and service. I think one of the things that struck me this year was 
Virtually everybody I talked to was speaking about growth or yeah, encouragement, right. church that's planting. Right. So I heard about church mm. planting in Athens, which was really encouraging, church planting in Italy. Um, I heard about church planting in Gdansk and growing churches that yeah. were there. So yeah. actually the mood felt remarkably encouraged in mm. terms of um, God being at work. It's obviously a day of small things at this point, but there is significant kind yeah. of um, gospel growth going on, I think, um, amongst a younger generation of pastors and leaders. It's also great to meet people running organizations like FIEC. Mm. So lots of the yep. churches are free evangelical churches. Um, I spent some time with the guy who's going to be leading essentially the equivalent of the FIEC in Slovakia. And there were some people from around the world this time. So I met a, a kind of a Nigerian leader who has basically established an FIEC. Is in, that a bit like Australia being allowed to be in Europe? Uh, yeah, That's yeah. kind of the same sort of concept. Um, but, but he was talking about how they've established essentially an FIEC yeah, in northern yeah. Nigeria, yeah. Um, reaching Muslim communities and villages. And he was saying they're seeing four or five. 500 Muslim conversions a year through that work. So that's just wonderfully encouraging. Mm. There's quite a few people from the FIC involved in it as well. So the music team were from Above Bar. Um, you run uh, your network alongside Jen Charteris, who's um, part of an FIC church. Uh, Dan Strange was there as part of the Theology Network. So it's a lot, quite a few people from FIC churches serving. I guess there aren't so many people from the UK who go as attendees. Should should some of the FIC church leaders and and people serving in churches think about being there as, as, as some, somewhere to go to be blessed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great opportunity. I mean, there's sort of uh, all different sorts of fields covered, as I said, apologetics, Bible teaching, leadership, the arts, children's work, youth ministry. Um, I think it'd be fair to say that um, actually in the UK, we have resources for lots of those things we do, um, yeah, at yeah. home. So I think for many of the people in Europe, this is a unique resource that's available to them. And it does remind us that actually a lot of training um, is available in the UK. Having said that, I think there is great benefit in actually learning from other cultures and how they're doing things so that sometimes stepping outside of your own immediate context to think about a different context and how they do things can cause you to think of things freshly yeah. and maybe maybe realize that much of what you do might actually be a result of tradition, mm. you might have mm. failed to contextualize because you've taken that for granted. So I, th I think there is benefit in learning from those coming out of different contexts. Yeah, yeah. Who can uh, who can put things into perspective mm. and maybe provoke you to think differently? Yeah, and it always challenges me where we draw the boundaries, you know, because you have to think all the time uh, about the people you're serving, and they might be serving in, a, in not only a different context but a different kind of church. Yeah. And um, actually, it's it's just good to be able to get beyond that, isn't it? Sometimes, and and um, I just find it a very humbling thing. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but as we were driving back to the airport, the the speed limit on the motorway was 140 kilometers <laughs> an hour which is almost 90 miles an hour. So it's a pretty high speed limit, I noticed. Although I did also notice that as, as the speed limit went down to 70, the car kept going at 140 kilometers an hour. So clearly it's a, um, not, not hugely enforced. Which brings us to the question of speeding tickets. Tale of two speeding tickets. Um, it's a while since we've had it in the news. So since we last met in the news, two speeding tickets have been in the news. Um, the first is uh, that issued to the Archbishop of Canterbury who was caught doing 25 in a 20 zone along the embankment and um, had to, well, he didn't make a court appearance. He, he was, um, he, he kind of pleaded remotely, didn't he? But pleaded guilty. And then a slightly more, more um, infamous, perhaps, incident with Suella Braverman and um, the speeding course that wasn't. Tell, tell us, John, a little bit about the kind of background to these. Yeah, well, they've, they've both been um, caught speeding. Um, I think I, the reality is that... Um, uh, Obviously, speeding covers a wide spectrum. Um, the law is clear as to what, 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 what should be done. 
I think they were both caught actually sort of exceeding a, re a relatively low speed limit yeah. and would both yeah. say that they hadn't known what the speed limit was or they weren't aware that they were breaching it. So it's very different from the person who's kind of deliberately... Yes, doing 100 on the M1, yeah, yeah. You, know, you know what you're um, doing. Yeah. So that, that's that's different. But it's a reminder that actually ignorance is no defence before mm. the law, that actually <laughs> yes. in, the, in these contexts, yeah. actually the standard is set. And irrespective of whether you know you're breaking the standard or not, actually that renders you accountable, which is just a reminder that actually with sin and with God, he sets his standards. And um, in a sense, our knowledge and acceptance of those standards isn't the basis on which mm. we judge will be held account for having um, kind of fallen short. Um, and that's with a view to protect kind of everybody, yeah. and keep every, yeah. everyone safe. Um, it's difficult to dig down into the exact circumstances, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, it seems as though he attempted to, to kind of, he accepted that he'd sped and yep, he wanted to resolve up, he this. Put his hands up, didn't he? Yeah. And it ended up in court because apparently his attempts to kind of pay the fine and do that seemed not to have been accepted. There were some very strange communications with Lambeth Indeed. Palace. Dear Arch. Um, so <laughs> I, I think I, he had a letter. I feel a me. measure of sympathy for him as yes. to where it ended up because if the story is as it's been reported, apparently he did attempt to resolve yeah. this and it, it kind of then um, escalated. So there isn't an indication on his part of a desire to want to try to mm. escape liability for that. Um, with the other, still a good headline though, isn't still it? Still a good headline. Yeah, yeah. Um, with Suella Braverman, I think the really interesting thing there is, again, she accepts that she sort yeah. of was speeding yeah. and she was offered two alternatives, which is now standard practice for very kind of minor infringements of speeding, which is a, a sort of a speeding awareness course, which you have to pay to go on that doesn't lead to points on your mm -hmm. license, but you have to do it with other people, or you can accept the three penalty yeah. points, which will have implications for your kind of um, insurance premiums for a number of years. She wanted in a sense, a private speeding course, because she didn't want to be sort of with other people. She didn't want to be noticed. She didn't want it to be a public story. So at one level, she wanted to, in a sense, almost find a way of hiding the fact that she had been caught and not to kind of associate with people in an ordinary way. And there's been some controversy over the extent to which she wanted to draw in civil servants to help with that. Yeah. Um, and then chose to take the points rather than the course, mm. because it would mm. remain that Privacy. So I think the really interesting thing there is the, the desire to be private, for it not to be known, um, to in a sense not have other people kind of recognise you. So there's a, a measure of, um, might be shame, but it's more likely to be kind of public relations and yeah, not want yes. you to be exposed yeah. in that yeah. way. Yeah. And, and much has been made of whether that is, um, uh, you know, whether she broke the ministerial code um, in terms of trying to get people to give her special treatment and that sort of thing. Is, is that just a non-story or is there more more to it than that, do you think? Well, I don't really know about the ministerial code issue. It seems as though the Prime Minister has decided not to take action, action right. on yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and I, think, I think from our perspective, it is this sort of a reminder that justice in the end needs to be done publicly yeah. Yeah. And, it, and not done in yeah. private and not done in secret and that people, no matter who they are, um, should not be entitled to special treatment that mm. enables them to escape the consequences of their actions. So uh, almost there, there are two elements there. Whether she's misused her government position, I think, is for those who are aware of what the ministerial code yeah, requires yeah. to investigate. I think the bigger picture is here is what looks like a common pattern in life, which is that people who are powerful, people who are celebrities, people who are rich, have an expectation that they will be treated differently mm. and that they will be able to avoid the ordinary consequences of their action when they've fallen short. It's, it's, and it's quite difficult to get down to people's motives, isn't it, in these situations? Because a, a lot hinges on, you know, what was the motive behind something? I mean, even when it comes to speeding, you know, was someone doing something deliberately and knowingly? Or was it accidental? I guess in Bible terms, was it sin with a high hand or not? And actually, it is very difficult to judge that, isn't it? I mean, sometimes circumstance, you know, does allow you to make a judgment, as, you were, as we were talking about. If you're driving 100 on the motorway, um, it's almost certainly that you know exactly what you're doing. But, but... 
25 in a 20, it's, it's very difficult to make a judgment about motives, which is why I think sometimes we, we think that, that, that the way that we can hide our motives from one another somehow also affects the way we can hide our motives from God. But of course, he, he sees everything, doesn't he? And that's, I, I think that's the sobering thing about the gospel and the, the, gospel, the gospel reality or the, the reality that the gospel kind of um, reveals is that actually you, you could even do the right things but if you do them for the wrong motive, then the Lord still sees. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is um, evident to God. Um, I do think um, as well in our culture, we've got this idea that my motive is what determines whether I'm really guilty or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I went, sin doesn't kind of quite work like that. The Bible's got two categories. There's kind of um, uh, sort of iniquity and, and transgression. There's sort of falling short of God's standard. Um, so God has set an objective standard. Mm. And to some extent, because we're created in his image, we have an awareness of what that standard is. And if we fall short of that standard, we're guilty before him, almost irrespective of our motives, almost irrespective of how hard we might have tried or otherwise, we've still fallen short of the standard. Transgression is another category, which is a deliberate crossing of a boundary. And actually, the way the, way the law works is the law reveals what sin is so that our falling short is turned into conscious transgression. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sense in which the more we know God's standards, the more we're aware of our guilt, but it doesn't actually make us more culpable before God. It doesn't, doesn't in a sense, make right. things sin that weren't otherwise. Right. Um, uh, and yeah, uh, that's why we need forgiveness. I mean, mm. interestingly, in both of these cases, the penalty had to be paid. Um, the, do, you, do you think, this is a question perhaps just for, for our own heart, are we very casual about speeding? I mean, it is illegal to speed. And yet I've been in lots of cars with Christian leaders driving at extraordinary speeds. Are, are, we, are we too casual about that? I just think actually it's a essentially law that doesn't matter. We start making the categories. Is that right? I think there's a danger of that. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, many of us grew up in an era in which there weren't speed cameras. It wasn't sort of likely that you were going to be a kind of caught. And we all have a temptation to think that we know what's best. We know what's yeah, safe. We yeah. want to make our own judgments. That's at the root of it, isn't it? So it reveals our degree of autonomy. Yeah, yeah. But I think there is a difference between the kind of the person who has totally ignored the law and in a lot of instances, people who have been caught out because they weren't aware what the speed limit yes, was. Yeah. Um, so again, I weren't think paying attention. Robert actually. Jenrick, the minister, was banned for driving yes, for six yeah, months. Right. He was driving at 68 on the M1. Um, but actually, it was one of those controlled motorways and the speed limit had been reduced to 40. Mm. And he would say, I, I wasn't aware that it had been reduced to 40. I was driving at 68, which was less than what I thought the speed limit was on the motorway. But... Uh, he had still exceeded the speed limit by nearly 30 miles yeah. an hour. So again, um, yes, we mustn't be casual. These rules are given not to restrict us, but actually for the benefit of society mm -hmm. as a whole. I mean, anybody on a speeding course will be shown the difference of impact and consequence if you hit a pedestrian um, below the speed limit and above the speed right. limit. That, that's what it's for. My, my favourite comment was from Eddie Marson. I don't know if you saw this. He's a famous actor. And um, he wrote to, I think, The Times, or one of the newspapers, and um, said that he could understand uh, Suella Braverman's reluctance because he went on a speed awareness course and um, he found it extraordinarily distressing because no one recognised him. <laughs> and um, there we go. <laughs> he, he thought he was more famous than he was. Um, let, let's, let's move on and talk a little bit about Joshua Sutcliffe. Uh, this, now, this is a subject which we perhaps need to come back to because it has extraordinary ramifications for how we live as Christians and speak as Christians, and especially for us as ministers of the gospel and those of us who are leaders in churches, how we encourage people in our churches who might be involved in public life in some way. Lots of people in our churches might work in the medical professions or might work as teachers or, or any sort of context where they 
and perhaps are thinking, can I talk about Jesus or not? So just tell us a little bit about Joshua Sutcliffe. He's a teacher. Um, this is a, this is actually going back to events that happened in 2017. So it's, in some ways, it's kind of an old story, but it's it's only just come to a head now, hasn't it? Yeah, Joshua Sutcliffe is a teacher who's been banned by the regulatory authority for mm. for teachers from teaching um, in the future, subject to possibly a review in a couple of years' time. Um, the heart of the issue is that um, he's a Christian who obviously uh, sort of passionately disagrees with transgender ideology. Um, and um, uh, so what he was banned from teaching because he had on a number of occasions misgendered a pupil. Yeah. So, um, Which was the head, that, that, pupil. those are the headlines we've seen. Those, those are the headlines yeah. that we've seen. Yeah. Um, and that was seen to not sort of, uh, in a sense, be respecting the dignity of the pupil. It was contrary to the policies of, of the school. Um, so that, that, that was that, that's the headline story. So it, it kind of... Um, immediately appears as, you know, here is Christian being mistreated or uh, kind of victimized in some way for having stood for their belief about, about the truth. Um, I think these are incredibly complex cases and we need to recognize that. I mean, actually, I'm on our podcast, I mean, we, this is an FIEC podcast, but an awful lot of what we talk about is not FIEC policy. No, We're just no. trying to reflect on these issues. And this yeah. is exactly yeah. an area in which evangelical Christians will have a disagreement mm -hmm. of view. So his, his view was, I will not use the pronouns uh, or that the person wants to choose, yeah. which many of us um, might have some sympathy with. Which some with. people might yeah. have some sympathy yeah. with. Yeah. He, he, he obviously felt that that was kind of being required to lie yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. in some way. And um, there's a big debate at the moment amongst evangelicals as to whether or not they should do that. So Rosaria Butterfield, who's a famous kind of yeah. lesbian, yeah. become Christian, she has recently made very clear she won't use pronouns um, right. of, of people's choice. Uh, Matthew Roberts, um, Presbyterian minister in England, has written a new book called Pride, in which he kind of says that he's happy to use people's chosen names but wouldn't use pronouns. Is there just a, um, is there a mismatch there? Well, I, I, I find that a difficult line to draw, but I, I, okay. I, on one level, I think um, sort of there's there's an idea there that the pronoun is saying something ontological about a person, right, that okay. it actually is declaring yeah, that yeah. they're male or female, whereas names are just, names are chosen. just chosen. So yeah, there's yeah, some okay. sort of yeah. cultural convention of the difference yeah. between names and pronouns yeah. there. But that actually, that very difference is the reason why evangelicals might take a different view. So mm -hmm. if you use a person's chosen pronouns, are you really falsely witnessing against their yeah, ontology yeah, or is that yeah. just a linguistic convention of how people speak to each other so there's, a, so there's a massive issue there to be worked through and evangelical christians may well take different views mm -hmm. as to what the right thing um is to do in and that in may of course present it, that that may be for us as leaders that just to pause there a moment that might not just be how we equip people to live yeah. in the world that might be an issue right in the church if someone comes into church we you know we're gonna have to face up to those sorts yeah. of questions aren't we we can't ignore Absolutely. those yeah yeah. I, mean, I read the judgment. I mean, I think I mean, it's absolutely right in a secular culture where these things are being debated, where policy is changing. Christians have the right to assert their rights and, and actually to take action to seek to uphold their rights. Right. So mm -hmm. part of this is about the question of, do you have the right yeah. to do that yeah. in, in that context? This first judgment concluded that the teacher didn't have the right to do that. Right. He's got the right to appeal to the high court. So it will go further. But there's some positive things in it for Christians. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, the story is bigger than that. So when you read the judgment, this was a teacher who was working in a school. Um, he was a maths teacher. He clearly exercised some Christian witness within the school. Mm. So um, he was allowed by the school to run a Bible club that people could um, right. kind of right. come to. So it was, it was known as a Christian. And in the end, what the tribunal found was that he'd crossed the boundary in his maths lessons and dealings with these people of, of being sort of a preacher rather than a teacher. And that was the language they used, that, wasn't That's it? The, yes. lang the language that they yeah. used. Um, and it, and some interesting things. So one of the claims made against him was that he had said that he was against gay marriage. Mm. And it was alleged that that was, again, a breach of the teacher's code. Um, the judgment finds that... Um, 
So when he was asked questions, what's your view on gay marriage by pupils? And he answered, that was regarded as being perfectly acceptable. He'd been right. asked the in, question. In, in the context of the classroom. In, indeed, yeah. so the freedom to answer and express your opinion. So that's sort of the one Peter four, always be ready to give a reason. In, uh, in that particular context, he was free to do that. I, indeed. Whereas okay. actually when he sort of in a sense talked about his view on gay, gay marriage uninvited, that was seen as crossing the line. Right from teaching because of the impact on potentially LBGTQ students who might be there. So that's quite an interesting navigation. Yeah. You, you're not restrained from saying what you think, but there's a difference between proactivity in that and the context in, in which yes. you might speak. Um, so if you'd done that in the Bible club, would that, that would be different. Well, I think that's right because people yeah. have chosen to come there. Yeah, okay, and right, they, they, right. Know, they know right. what they're coming to. Um, similarly, he played a, um, a video in a maths lesson that was about masculinity. Um, and again, I think it was the inappropriateness of doing that in, in that particular context. Um, having said that, he was also critiqued for things that he'd put on his own YouTube channel about homosexuality, about Islam. Mm. Um, again, because that wasn't referencing the school, because that was personal, that wasn't regarded as being contrary to kind of um, professional conduct in the school context. So there are some ways in which the... But there have been other cases, haven't there, where that's yeah. not been... See, there, there have been some cases, haven't there, maybe I've got this wrong, where, where, where people have put things on their Facebook posts and they have been picked up on that because of the connection to work? I can't instantly comment in detail on all of okay, those, but often okay. that may be because it is linked to work right, in some okay. way or, or okay. references to it. Okay. Um, on the on the transgender issue, um, what the tribunal found was that on a number of occasions, both in a group where this pupil was part of the group and also speaking to them personally, he had sort of deliberately not used the, the chosen pronouns um, despite school policy and despite that, the fact that that was what both the pupil and the pupil's mm. parents wanted in right. that situation. And it was the parents who complained that that was not respecting the dignity yeah. of the child and was harming them. And again, this is very complex because he, he clearly believed that um, enabling the child to identify as a different gender was itself harmful yeah. to the child. Yeah. And we've seen things like the report into GIDS um, in which children have suffered harm because they've been put on a pathway towards becoming becoming transgender. Um, but it does raise the question, does a teacher, is it your job in that context to contradict what the parents and the person wants to, in effect, defend them kind of um, from themselves? Mm. And in many cases, we just have to remember these are incredibly vulnerable kind of um, sort of children. And maybe that's not the context in which that issue is yeah. to be picked up. Yeah. And I think we, we can easily confuse the issue um, and how we deal with particular individuals. Mm. There was also the fact that I think quite significantly Given that this had happened, there was a disciplinary hearing. The teacher then appeared on the television. Um, During the hearing? Well, actually a couple of days before his disciplinary right, right. hearing. And one of the things particularly picked up on is he'd misgendered the pupil. I think it was on This Morning on ITV um, on television and enough details about who they were to enable the, their identity to be guessed by right. people who were watching it. And again, that was seen as a particular crossing um, of the boundary. So it, it seems to me that um, we, we operate in several different Bible categories here, don't we? And um, we, we mustn't set one above the other. So there is courage and there is boldness, but there's also wisdom and kindness and gentleness. Um, you know, we are to to make the most of every opportunity, but to do so with wisdom. So that there are lots of different categories and we, we mustn't just you know, major on one and think that all the others don't matter. I think that's completely right. And as we live in a, a society which has got a very different outlook from Christianity, and that has changed over the last 50 years, part of this is coming to terms with being in, in that kind of situation. There's that balance of um, uh, standing for truth and um, uh, being faithful witnesses to what we yes, believe. Yeah. Yeah. But does that mean that we have to always confront what the world does and what the world believes mm. that's wrong in, in every situation? And I think 
to me, we then have to reflect on things like Daniel, and Daniel working for King Nebuchadnezzar, being an administrator within the Babylonian government, being taught everything that kind of the Babylonians yeah. believed, yeah. Babylonian magic, Babylonian gods. Babylonian food. Um, uh, yeah, Babylonian food. Where, where do you draw the line? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you, you, you don't get the impression that Daniel opposed everything that was happening at every point. It would have been contrary to mm-hmm. kind of um, what God said, because otherwise he would have been unable to function yeah, yeah. and serve yeah. in the roles that he, he was given. But there were points at which he said, I will not do that. And I think navigating that issue of what that is, it is incredibly yeah. complex. Well, let's, let's come back to that, because that's such an important topic that, at another time. Um, but just thinking about wisdom, thinking about gentleness as well, um, leads me to want to, to talk to you about Tim Keller. Mm. Um, lots of deaths, actually, in the last yeah. couple of weeks of, of very well-known people. Um, but in the Christian world, perhaps the most significant one is is the passing of Tim Keller at a relatively young age mm. and been battling cancer for some time. I, I think I'm of a generation, I guess you are as well, where we're heavily influenced by Tim Keller, by his particular kind of apologetics, making a case for God um, and doing that in a very winsome, engaging way. What are some of your reflections on the, the ministry and the influence of of Tim Keller here in the UK, John? Yeah, I mean, I think Tim Keller has had a huge influence here in, in, in the UK. Um, and I think um, uh, we benefited hugely from how he helped us to think about ways of communicating the gospel to postmodern people, yeah. particularly those who are perhaps educated postmodern people, younger postmodern people, the kind of New York context in which he yeah. ministered. Yeah. And I think um, I had probably been brought up with um, a, a very strong emphasis on the importance of expository Bible teaching, which was really valuable um, and great. I think what Tim Keller added to that was um, a greater emphasis on contextualization and thinking about who you're speaking to and how to connect the gospel with them and how to connect the gospel with with their needs. So I think he modeled for us um, how to bring the gospel to bear on people and kind of highlight how the gospel connects with um, their lives um, so that the gospel is not only confrontational, but also um, kind of engaging and fulfilling um, their aspirations um, and their desires. Uh, and I think he did that in a, a remarkable way. Mm. Um, I think um, I mean, not everybody is going to agree with absolutely everything Keller would have said, and that's true of just about every Christian leader who, who will take their view. Um, I think he is commendable for having stood for the truth of the gospel. Um, in uh, he, he, he connected, but he didn't compromise yeah, yeah. Uh, on that. I, I do think he had a, a passionate commitment to evangelical unity, and to want you to be generous and kind to people. And he built unity um, as a result of that. There were some who felt that he was not confrontational enough and dis- disagreed with him on that. But I, I think um, I, I value his generosity of spirit uh, and the gospel coalition and working together with those who held quite different theological views, but yeah, standing yeah. together on the yeah. core it is a real model of fostering that mm. kind of And that spirit, that, I mean, he was invited to speak at the parliamentary prayer yeah. um, gathering here in the UK, it's a relatively recent thing, and had the opportunity to preach the gospel, um, you can find the, the audio online, to many um, parliamentarian, parliamentarians, unsaved yeah. parliamentarians. And actually, if, if, if he had been more confrontational, he would never have been offered that yeah. invitation. So it, it's interesting that actually, it's a bit going back to Daniel, um, you know, actually choosing your moments, taking wise lines does does give you opportunities. Yeah. 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 And I think in some ways the lesson from Keller for us to learn. The danger with all leaders is people think they see what they do and they just copy what they do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do think Keller's ministry was very targeted on a particular mm. demographic, a particular cultural context. Many of our churches are not operating in kind of metropolitan New York with that constituency. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I think, therefore, what you need to do is, is not just simply do what he did, but it's more about See thinking about did, why yeah. he yeah, did what yeah. he did. Yeah. And the methodology and how mm. he got there um, is actually the key thing that we yeah. can learn yeah. from. Because if you're ministering in a very different context, um, actually, the, the way you might preach the gospel could look very different. Sure. But you're essentially using the same methodology um, uh, to get there. And I think that's a great danger for kind of gospel ministers. Whenever they hear others that they like and whose ministry they appreciate, is they can tend to think, I just have to copy that. Yes, and end up being a poor imitation, um, which isn't even the right thing. Yeah, and, 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 yeah. and it just doesn't work where they are. And the reason is because the, the person has done such a good job of contextualizing yeah. the gospel for where, for where they John, are. John, that explains why I don't see you in your black polo neck <laughs> very often. Um, it's not really uh, where we are, is it? Uh, one of the things that um, uh, Tim Keller, of course, is famous for is really focusing on idolatry as, as a paradigm. We, can, we could have an argument, I guess, about whether that's the only paradigm in, in terms of the sin um, kind of uh, uh, portfolio, <laughs> but actually that was that was a big thing for him is identifying idols. And I just wanted to um, end by talking a couple, about a couple of idols um, because it, it's just interesting. Uh, an idol that we hardly ever talk about, pets. Now, I don't know how you feel about pets, John. Do you know there are 54 million pets in the UK? I Did didn't you know, that? know that, Adrian. 33 million of them are fish. Whoa. And I wonder how much <laughs> of those are pets or just uh, meals in waiting. I don't know. Anyway, 54 million pets. Um, the reason this is in the news is because Pets at Home announced their annual results yesterday. They have 54% of the market, uh, which is worth something like £7 billion in the UK, grooming your pets and caring for them. How, how do you feel about yeah. pets? I, I don't think I've seen you out walking your hamster. Uh, no, no, no. We are not massively pet people. You're not? Um, okay. I have had pets over my lifetime. My collection of pets, I was thinking about what I had. Stick insects, terrapins, tortoises, uh, rabbit, and, and hamsters. Is None of those are great of, for a walk. No, no, no. They're not really. great. They're and not, I did read yesterday a pastor saying that... Yeah. Um, uh, that getting a dog is the best evangelistic thing he'd ever done. Oh yeah, because people clearly stop and talk yeah. with each other, and I yeah. can sort of. I mean, at one level, that's sort of a utilitarian mm. reason for having a pet in yes. some sense. But it's certainly many. An said, idol? Do you think? I think does they, can they become idols? Uh, well, certainly, almost anything can become an idol. Um, so, I mean, you talk about pets. I happened to read an article in the paper this week about somebody who was talking about having spent thousands of pounds on a hysterectomy for their guinea pig and why it was worth guinea it. pig. Uh, guinea pig, absolutely, because they Goodness had this. Me. Had a great relationship um, uh, with with their guinea pig. Um, and <laughs> sorry, um, I, I, I know I know we should sort of remain impartial, but I can't I can't help a little guffaw at that point. I, I mean, there are, there are things in creation which are good and to be enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think in this whole issue of idolatry, one of the challenges is navigating: Am I enjoying a good gift that God has given, or am I worshiping something and investing mm -hmm. it with mm -hmm. a significance of bringing salvation and blessing to me? that actually really ought to be God's only. So I, th I think sometimes using the language of um, idolatry can be unhelpful because we can then almost feel guilty about anything sure. anything yeah. that we enjoy. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, people can sort of seek in effect salvation, blessing, fulfillment um, mm -hmm. from from these things rather than enjoying them simply as the good gifts God, yeah. God has given. Yeah. And I guess the, the fact that people like pets, they, they serve different functions, don't they? For some people, pets are comfort. Yes. So yeah. actually pets are companionship. Yeah. Often they're undemanding, unlike people. And they, <laughs> they, they kind of, they, they love that about them. They feel they get unconditional love mm -hmm. from their pets. Mm -hmm. To some extent, that's a slight Deception at some point. So your cat really doesn't love you in quite that way, but you fit. You feel <laughs> your terrapin. However, I can't I'm believe like, yeah, you had I was a terrapin. Really, somebody had, 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 a, had a sort of an emu, which was there to kind an of emu. an emu uh, to bring comfort. Um, uh, and actually, therapeutic value of animals going into hospitals and old people's homes. 
is, is well recognized. Yeah. And then for yeah. others, animals are a projection of themselves. So we read regularly in the papers terrible stories about dogs that attack people and kill mm -hmm. them, um, often a kind of version of an American pit bull. And yeah. you feel yeah. that for some people, their pet is a kind of a projection of strength. So, so yeah, people own, own animals for all sorts of different reasons. I'm not sure the Bible's particularly hot on pets. You don't get the great deal of sense that in the <laughs> you Old heard Testament, it here animals first. were the Bible given is to not be hot pets. On pets. I, yeah. I was wrestling whether yeah. I could think of any example of a biblical pet, and I'm not sure I easily could, actually. Um, okay, um, answers on Is there a prize? Is there a pets at home? Perhaps we should offer a pets at home voucher with pets in the Bible. Uh, we need to finish there, John. We'll, we'll, we'll finish with pets. Um, I, I love animals. So yep. do you. Don't write in. Um, <laughs> other idols are available. Um, thank you very much for joining us. This has been Independence, the FIEC podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, do rate us, review, um, just smash that like button, as they say, and that'll help us um, be found by other people. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, John. Thanks, Adrian.